this week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, Phillips doesn't value me because uh, I'm an interventional radiologist or I know UFIs or something like that. I'm sort of this dot connector. I see the big picture. I, I've maintained dual board certification, even in diagnostic radiology and done my recertifications. I do still do the office hours, you know, do, do keep those admitting privileges, uh, do the tumor boards and just refine your innate skill as an interventionalist, as an, as an innovator, be a good doctor first and foremost, because it's that that makes you valuable to industry, not just a diploma. And unfortunately, I just don't think there's a shortcut. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course, on Backtable.com. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Silicon Valley and co-founder of an early stage device company in the pulmonary space. We are very excited about our guest this week, Dr. Atul Gupta. This is our next installment on the Backtable Innovation Series, where you'll hear stories from physician innovators who are helping to shape the interventional field through health tech. Dr. Gupta is Chief Medical Officer of Philips, leading the Image Guided Therapeutics Division. Atul is a practicing interventional radiologist in Philadelphia with over 20 years of experience. Today, we're going to learn about Atul's path through IR to becoming a CMO, as well as what a CMO of a large corporation does. Hopefully, we'll also get to hear some tips on how you might be able to leverage your clinical skills and knowledge to join a company as an advisor or a CMO. So Atul, welcome and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's awesome to be here, Brian. I'm a huge fan of Backtable, so it's thank uh, you. this is great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, uh, we're honored to have you um, and let's dive right in. So love to hear just a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, where'd you train, uh, those types of things. Well, I live in uh, this Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, I'm an interventional and diagnostic radiologist like many of your listeners. Uh, I've been an interventional radiologist uh, for 20 years, 21 years. Uh, I trained at, uh, at Penn and I transitioned to industry to Philips about six years ago when we, um, when, when Philips created basically the IGT or image guided therapy cluster of businesses. That being said, I still practice several days per month uh, uh, doing interventional procedures now in ASCs or ambulatory surgery centers in the Philadelphia region. Awesome. And uh, touching on your practice now, what's your, what's your case mix? So it's quite different than, you, than what it was in a hospital. You know, in a hospital, as you know, we're doing trauma followed by a fibroid, followed by a tips, followed by a spine case, oncology. When you work in an ASC, it's a bit less diverse. So I spend mm -hmm. much of my time doing peripheral artery disease and dialysis access interventions. Mm -hmm. Although that being said, I think ASCs throughout the country, in the U.S. at least, are starting to also diversify the types of procedures they do. And we're seeing a lot more oncology happening as well. That's great. Yeah. It's good to see it spread out to ASCs. Um, now, going back in time a little bit, starting at the beginning, how did you decide on interventional radiology uh, as a subspecialty and uh, any mentors that stand out? 
Yeah, you know, it's um, it wasn't a straight path, and I don't know that it's a straight path for many people. I actually uh, started my life out wanting to be a cardiac surgeon, uh, and so I went to medical school in uh, in New York. And uh, as you know, we kind of have to decide in this weird way of what our specialty is going to be before we even finish our entire medical That's school right. training. And so you go through the match process, and I, I was matched to a categorical surgical program, Thomas Jefferson, here in Philadelphia. But the very last rotation that I did in medical school was this weird new specialty called interventional radiology. And this was in, back in 1994. By then, I'd already matched in surgery, but I just thought it was amazing because I remember putting on this lead and kind of looking like it was an OR and watching this guy whose name I don't even remember guide this little tiny piece of spaghetti, a catheter, through this little tiny incision about the size of a pencil point in the neck. And he was telling me, I'm going to go into the liver. Not only am I going to go into the liver, through the heart into the liver, I'm actually going to go through the, the parenchym of the liver and get into the portal vein. And I'm going to treat this guy's portal hypertension. And I was just fascinated watching him use these tools that I had never seen before and the image guidance that I had never seen before. And when he was done in about an hour and a half, the patient literally walked out of the room with a Band-Aid on. So I was sold. For me, this was the future. And, and so I ended up doing... Uh, a year of general surgery at Jefferson, because I thought, like many of my colleagues, actually, that it can only help if you want to go into this new specialty of interventional radiology. Surgical skills are quite important. And so that's what I did. But then I, I transitioned very quickly to the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my diagnostic radiology residency, followed by my interventional radiology fellowship. That's awesome. Uh, it's always good hearing a story of like that, how people come to IR and how fascinated they are at the beginning when they see minimally invasive procedures. It's a big draw uh, to the field. Now, you, when you finished your training, uh, tell me about your early career. Uh, what was your practice like there? I left Penn and I stayed in the Philadelphia area and I really wanted to build something for myself. So I think most fellows, they kind of leave and they you sit in two camps. Either you want to go to an established practice where you cut your teeth and you continue to learn. And the truth is you do most of your learning, as you know, after fellowship. You know, all that learning happens in that first or second year after you actually graduate when you're on your own without training wheels. Or so some people go into established practices where they kind of just go through the process. Other people, for some reason myself, decided I wanted to go to a, a hospital in, in South Philadelphia that did not have an interventional department. And so it was this fantastic opportunity to have this blank slate and build an interventional radiology department, equipment, service line, staff from scratch. And that, those, those four or five years were phenomenal uh, in informing my career, I think. It, it was very difficult to have to do it from scratch, but it makes you grow up real quick. And it also lets you design things the way you want to design them and not have them force-fed to you. Mm -hmm. So I started out there for about four or five years, and then I transferred to a very large health system in the Philadelphia suburbs where I became uh, ultimately a, a partner in a large 60-person radiology practice. We had eight interventional radiologists, and five or six PAs, four hospital health system, and, and I got to run the interventional department. And it, it, it was also extraordinarily fa fantastic. And I did that for uh, probably 15 years before I s switched over to Phillips. Wow, that's great. And tell me, along the way, through your training, through your early career, did you have any mentors that you looked up to or influenced you in a, in a, in a strong way? I think everybody does. And I, I think the people I look back at the most are 
attendings that I had during residency and mm-hmm. fellowship, people like Zeev Haskell and Mike Solon and, and Rich Shalansky, but probably the biggest influence uh, was uh, Stan Cope. So Dr. Cope, uh, as many know, kind of was this innovator. He, uh, he, he, whether you do gastrostomy tubes or nephrostomy tubes or biliary procedures or even lymphangiography or thoracic duct embolization, if you use a micropuncture needle, he, I mean, he invented this stuff and he was just really the best person to work with because he had super energy. I mean, he was in his seventies when I, when I was a fellow and, you know, you're so exhausted after 14 hours of doing cases and he would just keep going and going and going. And he never trained as an interventional radiologist. He was actually an internal medicine doctor. So he got to build the, the specialty from scratch. In fact, I remember him telling me a tool when I used to ask him, what's your background? It doesn't matter what my background is. I'm not an internal medicine doc. I'm not a radiologist. I'm a gadgeteer. That's what he always used to call himself, a gadgeteer. Oh, that's and fantastic. I just thought it was fantastic. So uh, for the listeners, what do you, can you give us a mix of what he invented? You mentioned, uh, you know, micropuncture and you mentioned biliary stuff, but we're talking about uh, the cope loop, correct? Yeah, cope loop amongst many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he did these inventions not because he was pushing a technology. Hey, I got this great idea. Let me see if I can put this in a body. No, he always instilled in all of the fellows, you have to solve an actual clinical problem. And he had this fantastic mind to find simple and elegant solutions to complex real world problems. Problems like the gastrostomy tube is falling out. That nephrostomy tube that was very tough to get in in a non-dilated system, the patient went to the floor and it fell out. Well, he invented a way to hold it in with these locking loops. Or I want a more minimally invasive way of getting into tubes, tubes like bile ducts or vessels, I mean, micropuncture access. Yes. Or even things like lymphangiography and thoracic duct embolization. I mean, it's such a hot procedure now through people like Max, Max Hicken and others. But I remember as a fellow, he would, you know, strap on this archaic headset, which was like this light on his head. And he would do these cut downs in between the webs of a patient's foot. And any fellow that trained in the 90s remembers thinking these are the worst cases to be involved in because <laughs> we didn't even know what he was doing. But he was basically doing things that we are now doing today you know, biliary lithotripsy. And so he was just always starting from a place of, I need to solve a problem, not let me invent something and shove it into a body. And that really, that really stuck with me. Okay. It sounds like he was a big influence on you from an innovation standpoint. I mean, you know, seeing, uh, you know, basically we're talking about locking pigtail catheters. We're talking about uh, the T tabs on G-tube sets to keep, exactly. the, to keep the stomach up against the wall. I mean, these are foundational devices that that he helped create. And devices that also have crossed um, specialty lines, micropuncture access. The whole concept of micropuncture is used almost in any interventional procedure, whether you're doing something in the heart, the spine, the, you know, you're a radiologist, cardiologist, or vascular surgeon. But he didn't care so much about the specialty. He just saw himself as a physician. And I think that's really important. It's a fantastic point. I mean, when, if you, if you pigeon, maybe you're saying, if you pigeonhole yourself and saying, I only work on this part of the body or this area, you might be missing out on other opportunities to help patients, uh, in other parts of the body with the same concept, maybe not the same device, but maybe the same concept. Exactly. And, you know, it's natural that hospitals and physicians get into turf battles, but Mm -hmm. the minute you start to break away those silos, that's when real innovation comes. And that's why I love going to conferences like, for instance, ICIT, 
it, 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 the, the Barry Katzen runs because it's, it's a multi-specialty conference. It's, it's a conference where you bring surgeons and cardiologists and vascular surgeons together or conferences like APS-CVIR in, in Asia Pacific or, or PAIRS in, in the Middle East or SIRSA or SIR. They're increasingly becoming uh, multi-specialty conferences because collaboration is what leads to the best innovation. And hopefully, you know, as the future goes on, there will be less of these silos and, and more blending of specialties. Um, you know, hopefully that's the direction we're going in. I think it's better for patient care. And I think ultimately, you know, I think we're all going to be called image-guided therapists at some point in the future. I mean, there's so much blurring between what surgeons and cardiologists and even urologists and gynecologists and, of course, radiologists are all doing. We're using imaging, using minimally invasive tools. And maybe we're using them in different parts of the body or the same part of the body. But at some point, we're, we're going to be just called image-guided therapists, I think. I think that's a great point. Now, with you, how did you get started in innovation? You were in your practice. You were doing a private practice. Sounds like you were, or you were busy in your early career. Uh, but you also found time to collaborate. Uh, and tell me, what was that like at the beginning for, for listeners out there? How did, how did you start? Again, it wasn't by design. I never had this ambition to do what I'm doing now. I, I just wanted to make sure I was doing what I loved. And I loved working with patients and building a department in South Philadelphia at this hospital. And, uh, and then I started to see problems. I started to see how I like using, for instance, ultrasound. And ultrasounds are becoming a lot smaller. And I needed it for ultrasound guidance during the procedure. But I also needed x-ray guidance during the procedure. So how come I have to go to one company for the ultrasound and look on a different screen and how come I use another company for the x-ray and look on another screen? And, you know, we're all twisting our necks in lead. And so I, early on, I just said, let me get these two companies together. And can you guys integrate the two in one screen? Give me an A-B switch. Figure out a way to make this work. We, we can do some of these things so easily in our consumer lives. It was unfathomable to me why we can't do this in healthcare. And so I started working with companies like Philips, even back then, and Sonosite in terms of integrating imaging. And then we started doing things like 3D rotational angiography, which made these really cool 3D images. But what I really wanted to do was use that imaging to guide a procedure and maybe even better use historic imaging like CT or MRI. And so I started to work with Philips, not in a paid capacity, just because I'd like to, to, to work on research projects with them and be on their medical advisory board and explain to them what the unmet needs are and help them develop all these tools. So I kind of fell into it working with Philips. Um, uh, I didn't plan on wanting to be working for Philips, and I wasn't even paid to work with them. It, it just happened organically. You just saw problems in your practice. You wanted them to be improved. Uh, so you worked with the two companies that you were already using their equipment to try to improve that. So it sounded like you were providing value for the company well before you were being compensated in any way or even part of the team. And that maybe is important to us when you're establishing a relationship with, with an, an industry partner. I, I think so. I mean, it again, starts from having an unmet clinical need. I had a clinical need in different areas and I said, Hey guys, you guys are smart, figure it out. Let me help you. Uh, so I think it starts with that. I think also innately, I mean, interventionalists, IRs and interventional cardiologists, to use Dr. Cope's expression, gadgeteers, I think, I think we like technology. Um, so we, we like gadgets. We like thinking about new ways of solving problems. IRs are really well suited for that. That's what we do every day is solving problems for other people. Uh, and so 
I think if you're interested in, in working with industry, you start early with investigator initiated studies, get in touch with your local sales reps and your clinical education teams of whatever industry it is and, and get in early uh, with the company and help them see what you want them to see and, and build the relationship like that. And were you publishing at the time, uh, going to conferences, giving talks? Yeah, I, I always maintain, even though I was in private practice, I always maintained um, some academic portion of my practice. So I published a lot on, for instance, fibroid embolizations, 3D rotational imaging to um, for interventional procedures, things like trauma, things like uh, filter retrievals, uh, working with some other companies on creating apps so that we can track patients that have filters placed so we make sure we get them out. Uh, so yeah, I did a lot of publishing, uh, certainly not as much as somebody in academics, but I also didn't have the time to do it. I mean, I was in private practice. I did it again because I liked to, not because it was a means to end to an end to anything. And I loved going to conferences, not just conferences in the U.S., but conferences uh, in Europe, for instance, or Asia, because you see when you grow up in the U.S. and you're conditioned and trained in a U.S. environment, you think the whole world revolves around our technology and our innovations, our healthcare. And then when you see what is being worked on in other countries, you realize uh, that's the stuff that's going to be coming here over the next few years. So it's, you get a very interesting perspective. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, when did when did you formalize the role with Philips as CMO? Uh, I assume you were working with them. It sounds like you were working with them from day one, just on small projects that you you wanted things to work better, and you thought uh, they could help, and you would help them in turn to solve problems that they didn't even realize were problems. Um, and so, how did that progress to a, a formal relationship? Uh, about six years ago, uh, the image guided therapy cluster of businesses, the, the cluster of businesses that I now represent as CMO, uh, that was actually developed or, or created at Philips. And it started out by um, an acquisition. It was the acquisition of Volcano. Uh, and so at that point, Philips decided that they wanted to get into the medical device, the endovascular device space. And it wasn't just about selling devices. It was really about making smart devices, integrating those devices to the imaging system and supporting it with a whole bunch of software. And so this new um, division or business in Philips was created called IGT, and it became sort of a natural uh, point in time for me to say, hey, you know, I've been working with them for so long, and now they have a need or they for, for a CMO. Let me try this out. And actually, I, I met with the business leader, and, and I said, I want to do this as a bit of an experiment because I'm not, you know, I want you test drive a car. I want to test drive this job. And so I said, let me do it 50% of the time, uh, and let's see how this experiment goes. And the experiment was a profound success for both of us. And so I decided to formalize that about, again, six years ago, where I became full-time with the caveat that I said, I always want to be able to maintain clinical time several days per month doing my own thing separate from Philips, uh, which of course they were more than happy to let me do. And so th that's when it started six years ago. Okay. It sounds, uh, maybe there's a good point in there too. Uh, and that is you don't have to dive in with both feet. You didn't leave clinical practice. Uh, you said, I am interested in this, but let's test it out. Let's test out the relationship, see if it works. Uh, and then from there, uh, you decided to, if it worked out, you'd formalize it. Yeah. I mean, again, I like that analogy of test driving a car. We make I've seen young people, I've interviewed people when I was in private practice who were looking for jobs and people spend more time 
looking for reviews on Amazon for a, a piece of furniture in their house that they're going to buy more than they actually do the due diligence on a job that they want to take. So if you're going to test drive a car, why would you not test drive a job? So even if you don't go into industry, I, my recommendation is to any resident, do, do, I even did this, I, you know, you do, do locums for a bit, do, do something where you can actually see more than that one hour interview, what a practice is like before you join it. That's fantastic advice uh, for everyone out there, I think, uh, in any role. So you became CMO. Maybe you can explain a little bit of your, your role at Phillips. So it's been a bit of an evolving role, and it was an interesting role because the role didn't exist before me. So part of the role was actually defining what the role needs to be. Just to back it up a bit, Phillips, for many people, means things like light bulbs and the people that invented the CD player and DVDs and things like that. And all that is true. I mean, Philips is a 130-year-old company, but it actually transitioned out of consumer electronics and lighting and just in the last month, even domestic appliances, things like air fryers and cooking things. It's, it's pure health technology. And they started this process 10 years ago. And so because they shifted to become a pure health technology company, they now had to develop the medical roles in the company. And so I came in and for image-guided therapy, my, my role was to actually also help define what they need. And so now my role in, in Philips is it's pretty broad. I, I, I'm responsible for the clinical strategy and vision in image-guided therapy in our cluster of businesses. And that means things about radiology and cardiology and vascular surgery, uh, spine, oncology, neuro and also our future clinical areas, areas that we want to expand into. Uh, I give clinical input to our product roadmap. I work with a lot of the innovation teams um, on both the imaging systems and the medical devices. I I'm heavily involved in things like acquisition and due diligence and engaging with external partners for investment, but also alliances and partnerships. It's not just health companies that we need to work with. We need to work with consumer companies. We need to work with people like Microsoft. Um, and so uh, I, I do a lot of that, um, education, clinical validation, health economics, working with regulatory agencies, understanding it's not just me. We have teams and teams and teams of people, but somebody has to be the clinical voice internally, real world clinical voice to give kind of um, a sanity check or guidance on where we need to head. But in a nutshell, when people ask me what my job is, I kind of say, I, along with all 80,000 employees of Philips, wake up every single day with the same purpose. We get to kind of get paid to dream about the future of healthcare. And that's pretty exciting. I can see that. I can tell you're very passionate about it as well. Um, so can you tell, I know there's no typical day. I, of course not. But what would be a typical week as, as a CMO? Do you, you don't have to go through any, you know, big details, but are you traveling? Uh, you may do cases in Philly. What, what does it look like? So, I mean, obviously, if you ask me this question pre-pandemic, it was a bit different than post-pandemic. Sure. But uh, interestingly, um, Philips is a very digital company. It's also pretty spread out, right? So we have 100 countries or more than 100 countries that we have a presence in. We have 80,000 employees. So we were already pretty virtual. So even before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of meetings. And I still, to this day, you know, I meet with dozens of people a day from around the world in group meetings and single meetings. I meet with a lot of external parties, um, but I am getting back to travel and travel is one of the things I miss the most. And so, yeah, I do a fair amount of travel and I was doing a fair amount of travel before the pandemic. And that would be travel to conferences, working with our research teams to do actual experiments. I still kind of like to roll up my sleeves and do cadaver work and pig lab stuff, uh, uh, meeting with, with 
influential physicians around the world, never in a way of selling it, but to just get insights. Um, and, and of course, then visiting our own employees uh, to kind of explain and work with them to, to, to deliver a message about what we need to do. I, so, so there is no one particular day. It's kind of like interventional radiology. It's what attracts us to the specialty. No one day is the same. I mean, you know, in IR, it's one of the things that attracted us. You could do a spine case and then a, a spleen and then a, an abscess and then a neuro case and all in one day. It's that diversity of, of disease that we treat that makes it exciting. And the same thing holds true for me and Phillips. Yeah, I think you raise a good point about, I guess, radiology and IR in general, how you do have to be able to speak at a high level to a number of different specialties. And do you think that has helped you in your, you know, your vision and your, your quest to improve multiple specialties? Yeah. I mean, when I'm practicing clinically, I'm a tool to indeed interventional radiologist. When I am at Phillips, IR is a little bit of a backseat because I see myself as just a physician that has to be knowledgeable in many different areas. And we have seven clinical segments in IGT that we play in, right? So it's coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, but also electrophysiology, structural heart disease, neuro, oncology, and spine. Now, not all of these places are places that I do procedures and I don't do PCI procedures, but I have to be pretty savvy at the data, the, the developments, so I can speak the lingo in an educated way with some of the smartest people on earth, physicians that are working in these spaces. Interventional radiologists, I think, are uniquely suited to this type of role because if you think about it, Brian, we are kind of the great aggregator in the hospital. We're working in so many different disease spaces and organs, and we have to collaborate with pulmonologists and GIs and oncologists and surgeons. And so we're kind of naturally suited to be problem solvers and, and work across multiple areas. And, and if you take that on steroids, that's my day at Phillips. <laughs> that's great. Okay. That's a great segue. I would love to talk a little bit about what Phillips is working on. Some of the exciting tech. I know you guys are visionaries and you see the world slightly different way. I would love to hear a little bit about the tech specifically at some point. I do want to talk about the force technology that you guys have developed when you get to that. Well, I think that in general, um, again, technology is not the end game. It's meant to be an enabler. It's supposed to enable physicians to treat patients better. So when we look at all these different technologies, it, 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 we always start in this process of co-creation, working with the end user. And by the way, the end user is not just physicians. It could be technologists, nurses, C-suite, and patients themselves. We do this interesting thing that um, in industry, it takes a while for products to come out. What you see today has been in development for seven or eight years. And so that also means that we have to really have our fingers on the pulse of not just physicians today, but people from before. So there's an interesting thing that we do, which is we bring in, you know, basically teenagers, kids into our, our research labs in, in Eindhoven, for instance. And we just basically throw them into a cath lab and say, hey, play with this interface, play with this, this piece of equipment and tell us what you think. Obviously, there's no x-ray that's on, but they can still get an idea of, of how they interact because these are going to be the physicians of the future. And remember, you know, these are people that were born that makes us feel old. The day the iPhone was developed, that's how long an iPhone has been out. And so it's very important for us to talk to all the stakeholders, not just physicians. Um, and yeah, I think that some of the technologies that we have in development that we publicly talked about are, are things that excite me the most, things like augmented reality and new ways of interfacing with our medical devices and imaging systems, things like artificial intelligence, where in the beginning, 
it's going to be basically just an enabler, uh, an assistant to me so that maybe when I'm done with the procedure, I'll have 80% of my report already dictated. But also things like new ways of imaging, like fours or fiber optic real shape, the technology that you just described, which um, is a new way of visualizing our devices in 3D, endovascular devices without radiation. And so now we can actually do AAA procedures and they've already done first in human cases uh, last year on this without radiation. Now, if you think about it, we've been in the radiation business for almost a century. So for a company like Philips to basically disrupt itself and say, yeah, radiation is great, but we're going to think about a new way of imaging. That was my and question. Yeah. Then, you know, Fours is just one example or EPD Solutions, another business that we have in IGT, which is using dielectric imaging, a new way of imaging catheters in the heart to do EP procedures without radiation. These are really foundational strategic uh, decisions that um, I think will change the next several, the next century of healthcare. As I said, we've been in healthcare for a century, but we don't want to focus on the past. We need to invent the next century of healthcare. It sounds like Philips has, yeah, I've read the, if you read the book, uh, Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, uh, he talks about companies having a, a higher purpose. And he also talks about how some companies can become pigeonholed with a certain technology. They don't become treaters of, say, Philips could say, we make the best x-ray systems possible. Uh, but it sounds like you guys are saying we are going to invent the best way to treat patients, whether it's now, uh, you know, one week from now, one month from now, or a hundred years from now. Uh, and I think that's a long-term view that really keeps companies successful. You need to rally everybody around a common unifying uh, purpose. And it, it's not just to excite and motivate and give guidance of a North Star to existing employees. It also um, helps you attract talent into the company. And so at Philips, exactly as you said, Brian, it's our purpose to, to improve health and well, well-being through meaningful innovation. And if you put a number on it, it's our specific goal to improve the lives of two and a half billion with a B people per year by 2030. Now you're going to say that number sounds so huge, it doesn't make any sense. But already it's, we've hit 1.6 billion lives are improved every year through one of our technologies. I went into healthcare, you went into healthcare to be able to treat patients better. And, you know, I can treat seven, eight patients a day. And it's absolutely gratifying to have a cold leg turn warm when you do your angioplasty or have your hypotensive patients suddenly perk back up when you embolize their, their, their liver lack or kill the tumor in their kidney. But we can only treat seven or eight patients per day. Coming to Philips takes is exponentially greater role in terms of improving patients' lives. And so it's what attracted me to the company. And also it is our purpose and it keeps our teams motivated. That's great. Do you, do you picture, do you think uh, for complex cases in the future that everyone will be wearing something, some type of goggles for augmented reality to help them do the procedure? I, I don't know. I mean, the way I talk about this is that I think AR is more than just for me, um, a, an accessory to a screen, you know, we already have screens. And then if that's all it is, it's another like gimmick, a technology push. You need to be able to do something better. It has to address the quadruple aim. In fact, every development that we create at Philips kind of starts out with this quadruple aim. You have to improve patient outcomes. You have to be able to reduce costs and improve the patient experience and the staff or physician experience. If you can do all four of those things, that's, that's a success. And AR will be a way for me to control these increasingly complicated 
interventional systems and medical devices and all this stuff that plugs into the operating room or the, uh, or the cath lab um, without having to reach out and touch a button. I can use voice commands. I can use gesture. I can even use eye tracking. You can see what I'm looking at. I can press buttons with my eyes. And we have some newer ways even uh, of interfacing with the system because ultimately at the end of the day, you and I just want to be doctors. We don't want to be computer programmers. We want these systems to just feel like an extension of our hands and our minds. We don't want to read instruction manuals. So that's why user interface is so important to me because you can have the best tools in the world, but if nobody knows how to use it, nobody will use it. You can't improve the outcomes. Yeah. Now tell me, uh, move on to uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and that's the lung. Uh, what are you working on at Philips uh, in the lung in terms of lung nodules, lung ablation? Yeah, so I think, as you know, then, uh, you know, lung cancer is an extraordinarily um, big problem around the world. More people die of lung cancer than colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer combined. And we've reached this point where a lot of people are getting incidentalomas. They're getting imaging for other purposes or even a screening CT for their lungs. Uh, and we're catching nodules at a much earlier stage. So how do you biopsy these things when they're seven millimeters or six millimeters? Is it only IRs that do the biopsy or can we enable other physicians like pulmonologists to biopsy these? But maybe even more importantly, it's not enough just to biopsy it. You also want to treat it. And so last year, we released Azurion Lung Edition. It's our Azurion Image Guided Therapy platform customized for this particular use case for lung cancer. And so using uh, navigation software and historic imaging, old CAT scans, for instance, or maybe even PET scans, you can kind of give a human GPS register to the patient and guide a pulmonologist to that uh, tiny lung tumor, a tumor that's probably invisible on plain fluoroscopy, uh, and then you do a cone beam CT or a CT in the room to confirm that your biopsy probe or ablation probe is exactly where it needs to be. And then you can kill the tumor right then and there. And so Azurion Lung Edition, I think, is the first step towards expanding into some of these adjacent areas, not just coronary and vascular and EP, but increasingly into oncology and neuro and spine. Very interesting. And now being in the space, I'm going to ask a little bit more of a... a... A future question, um, would you consider using in the lung technology like fours or would you use, would Philips develop their own ablation technology? What are you seeing for the future here beyond just, hey, let's help you get to the lesion or let's help you see where the lesion is? I, I think that uh, anything goes as long as it's going to solve the problem and the problem could be just workflow. Remember, interventional pulmonologists are not interventional radiologists or cardiologists. They're not very accustomed to using sophisticated hybrid ORs and big pieces of imaging, imaging equipment. So we have to make it easy, fit into the workflow. And you're seeing this with other companies, new ways of imaging without radiation, using robotics for this space, uh, ablation planning. You know, it's not just... Uh, sticking a needle in a tumor, but can you customize or sculpt the ablation zone? Can you predict that ablation zone using our software? These are all areas that we're working on. Oh, that's great. So uh, if you had to boil it down, what are you most excited about for the future of image-guided therapies? Well, that's a tough question. I can't tell you <laughs> one thing. I mean, it's just the variety of diseases, but I think in general, the fact that we play in so many different areas. And if you go back to the real purpose, I told you the Philips purpose was improving two and a half billion lives per year by 2030. The first thing I did was I, when I came to Philips was actually try to dive into the image guided therapy influence. Cause it's one thing to improve the lives of two and a half billion people by saying that, yeah, somebody had a CAT scan or ultrasound, which is extraordinarily meaningful. 
but I care about treating patients. So what I dove into was how many patients does IGT treat per year? And when you crunch the numbers, it comes out to 35 million patients. What that means is one patient every single second somewhere on earth has their life improved or even saved thanks to one of our devices or systems. I mean, just in, you know, 30 minutes or that we've been talking, if you crunch the number, you can think of the thousands of patients who've had strokes reversed and tumors killed just in the last few minutes. Increasing to other areas beyond the areas that we currently play in is what makes me most excited. Getting into places like oncology and spine and stroke, getting into new technologies like robotics, where we are not just making physicians be able to drive a, 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 a a procedure remotely, but giving them superhuman abilities. Those are the areas that I think excite me the most. Mm. It sounds like improving patients' lives at scale uh, is really what you're going for. Now, exactly. You're a chief medical officer. There really, there doesn't seem to be very clear ways of getting into being a, a CMO f coming from a physician's pr perspective. So if there are any listeners out there that might want to look into being an advisor or chief medical officer, what tips would you have for them, uh, especially for the guys who may be starting out? Uh, one of the most common questions I get asked when I travel or even just, you know, from emails is I want to get into industry. How do I do it? And people are always looking for a shortcut. And it does, it does annoy me a little bit because I don't think there is a shortcut. My tips, if you're contemplating a role in industry are first, understand if you really want to go into it. I mean, industry does not give you the immediate gratification you get when you're treating a patient and you're seeing that leg pink up or that blood pressure come back up instantly. You know, an IR would see problem, fix problem, next problem. You need to be patient in industry. So just be aware of that. Um, but if you made the decision that you want to go into industry, also understand it's not your diploma that makes you important. It's not that MD or that MBA, if you have one, I don't, uh, that makes you important to industry. It's your breadth of clinical experience. At least that's what it's been for me. Um, and so, uh, you know, Phillips doesn't value me because uh, I'm an interventional radiologist or I know UFIs or something like that. I I'm sort of this dot connector. I see the big picture. I, I've maintained dual board certification, even in diagnostic radiology and done my recertifications. I do still do the office hours, you know, do, do keep those admitting privileges, uh, do the tumor boards and just refine your innate skill as an interventionalist, as an, as an innovator, be a good doctor first and foremost, because it's that that makes you valuable to industry, not just a diploma. And unfortunately, I just don't think there's a shortcut. Okay. So that's what I hear. There are no shortcuts. And the best way, if you are interested in, in joining a company, becoming a CMO, you have to be a strong clinician first. That's where you're going to add value to the company. You can pick any topic that interventional cardiologists, surgeons, or radiologists do. And I can guarantee you there are people that know the details far better than even I do. And I do these procedures in Phillips. They're not physicians. So it's not the content knowledge that makes me valuable. It's just the breadth of experience um, and, and knowing what life is like in a hospital that makes you valuable. So seeing the big picture uh, sounds important. Absolutely. Last question before I, you know, I know you have to go, you're very busy. Uh, so I'm gonna ask you this question. I know you don't like this phrase, but I'm gonna say, is there any work-life balance with how hard you have to work? Um, and we talked a little bit about this before, but just wanna hear you uh, say again. Yeah, you know, the pandemic has sort of put everything on its head. So work-life balance is a, is a popular term in working from home. But when you work from home, 
especially if we're across time zones, work from home means live at work. That's what it's turned into because there's, it's, it's always 8 a.m. somewhere on the planet. So um, I work a lot, but I also enjoy what I do. And even from the very beginning, from my first day in internship, I've always selected jobs that I didn't consider to be jobs. And I, this would be my message for people that are interested in going into industry. You know, pick, pick a career, pick a job, pick a purpose where it doesn't feel like it's work because then suddenly it motivates you to keep doing it. And it's not because I have to, but it's a because I want to. That's a great message and a great place to end it. Atul, thank you so much for sharing your history, your career, and uh, a little bit about your role at Philips and, and the vision that Philips has uh, for impacting patients. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck to you and Philips. And thank you very much, Brian. This was fantastic dialogue. Great. Thank you. Thank you.